What is up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Meaning Enough Podcast. I am Ace. This is RB3. And this is the podcast where we talk about your favorite directors and the deeper meaning within their films, or at least we hope they're your favorite directors. There's some of the top directors that we're interested in during this week. I don't know. We're figuring it out as we go, guys. But this week, we're continuing our Mexican, Latino, Hispanic theme, and we're doing Alejandro González Iñárritu, which is a very famous director, and he is pretty much considered to be one of the top guys, um, especially after making Back to Back with Birdman and The Revenant. Oscar-winning director, famous dude, friends with Alfonso Cuaron and Guillermo del Toro, and Emmanuel Lubetsky, who's obviously a master himself and who's pretty much done every... Every every Mexican guy who's yeah. doing a film can hire this guy because he's amazing. Yeah, I think Del Toro's worked with him, but that'd be crazy. Del Toro's work that would be kind of nuts, bro. Yeah. I would love to see that. Yeah, yeah. like a Lubetsky Del Toro like weird, creepy horror film. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, <laughs> sign me up, man. Sign me up. Uh, but before we do that, guys, we're gonna read your comment section. But RB three, I like that shirt, man. Hey, man. Thank you. I want to give a quick shout out to. Mr. Fighting Nerdy on Instagram and on Twitter, Fighting Nerdy. He sent me the shirt. He knew he, he knew I was broke. He knew I didn't have any 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 new clothes to wear, especially in the summer weather. I usually wear a lot of long sleeves, but it's hot. It's, it's over a hundred, over one hundred and fifteen in LA right now. So uh, but, and it's on over one hundred fifteen, literally in this, in this, in this house in this right, now. right now. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> hey, listen, but no, this is dope. It's a uh, uh, this is America. Uh, you know, it got the obviously the Gambino and, and the images shooting the guy, and, and it's it's back. almost a classic pose now. Yeah. Everyone keeps posting that pose, like it's, every everywhere I see it, it's like always on Instagram, and people are like mimicking it and stuff. Like it's crazy how much that blew up. Yeah, it's become a whole thing. Like it's pretty dope. Yeah, his name is Fighting Nerdy. Fighting Nerdy. So Gonna just catch him fighting nerdy. Catch him fighting. Yeah, just fighting <laughs> fighting nerdy on Instagram and Twitter, and uh, yeah, support that guy, man. Cool. Makes dope shirts. Uh, let's go to the comment section from last week's episode, which was Alfonso Cuaron, like we Ooh, said yeah. before. Uh, Tony Wagner. Tony's back. Tony Wagner. Tony's back. Every time we see you, Tony, we're going to call you out. <laughs> and we're going to read your damn comment. Um, he says, Cuaron is a master at what he does, especially Children of Men and Y Tu Mama Tambien, yeah, being some of the man. best films ever. Can't wait for Roma, which is his newest film releasing this year on Netflix. Interesting. Uh, you guys create great podcasts for airplane travel. What are your favorite films so far of 2018? That's a great question. Um, I want to hear your thoughts on what's your favorite film so far of 2018. 2018? Well, I haven't seen like as many. What about the film we just saw? I, I know. Sorry to bother you. I don't know if that would be like my favorite, but it's definitely the one I've thought about the most out of any film that I saw. It's probably it probably would be honestly one of the honestly, top ones. Yeah, I, I yeah, mean, yeah. It, it, at least top five of the year so far. I, yeah, oh, I definitely top five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just to me, uh, to me, the film is a little unbalanced, but. Sure. You know, for all of this unchecked, like, rawness is, is very expressive and creative and, like, very, very original. You know what I mean? So it's almost like an urban Charlie Kaufman, like, meets, like, Ken Pill, like, kind of weird, strange mixture, you know? So uh, I, I appreciate it on that front. I mean, I probably still put <clears throat> Black Panther as my top, um, only because of what, you know, not not because of what it represents, but it's also just a... Uh, a really dope movie. I mean, yeah. Uh, and from all around the board, like when you really think about um, what it had to say philosophically, politically about identity, all that stuff, I think it, it probably has some of the strongest. 
in that front. But then again, I haven't seen Hereditary yet. Uh, so that one I haven't seen. And I saw Tully. And Tully would honestly be like one of the top ones. Which was Tully? It's one of uh, Charlie Theron, uh, directed by Jason Oh, yeah. Ryan. Was that good? It was It was dope until the ending, because it has a really bad ending. Gotcha. Yeah, but uh, that, would, that would probably be up there, too. But it's, you know... The ending kind of fell apart. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things too. I, I definitely want to rewatch Black Panther because I think the last time I saw it was in theater. I want to buy the Blu-ray. I don't. Do you have the Blu-ray? Buddy? Yeah, yeah, the Blu-ray. I'm gonna borrow that real quick, bro. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I would probably say Hereditary for me. Hereditary, I mean, her- Hereditary because yeah. it's a different feeling. Because if the purpose of a movie is to make you feel the most disturbed feeling ever, then you accomplish that purpose in Hereditary, and you won my vote for favorite movie of the year so far. That movie's insane. Um, and then, obviously, Infinity War. <laughs> Wait, really? Hell yeah. <laughs> that movie touched my soul, man. It made me feel butterflies. It made me feel all good inside. Oh, man. I don't know, man. It's, it's one of those movies, man. I can't, I can't vibe with that. Uh, Fernando Moreno says, The Spanish pronunciation is Iñarito. Just in case you care. Keep up the great, go- keep up the great work. You guys are awesome. Saludos from Mexico. Um, thank you. Shout out to Mexico, as yeah. we're doing already. I've been mispronouncing his name forever. Oops, sorry. <laughs> uh, but I'll get it right this time. Yeah, I, I listen. I'm not gonna say it right either way. I don't think <laughs> I have a lazy tongue, so but the Spanish names aren't aren't that great for me. But we try this time. Uh, Team Money ninety one says you guys are doing the Lord's work. Oh. Wow. Your take is always illuminating and inspires me to reevaluate the over of directors. Of directors. That's my <laughs> Every time I see a word, um, I used to do this at work because I used to write like copy and scripts and stuff. And every time I would do like a foreign word, I would just go, <laughs> just, just add like a little accent towards it. That's good. Um, that's funny. Uh, so yeah, thank you. That's a really nice comment. That's I told nice you beforehand. Comment. I was like, "That's we're getting some nice comments." Man. Hey man, comments. Hey, I'm used to keep, that. Keep 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 sending us the nice comments and you know iTunes listeners. I know you guys are are, are doing us a great favor by listening to us on iTunes, man. We appreciate that. Uh, one more. Let's do David Jordao. 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 Um, says I keep listening to you guys on during work because I have some long hours. Just as just know as one of the fellow member lovers to another. Sorry guys. I'm reading this. It's very far away and it's small, so I'm gonna increase the. <laughs> yeah. I'm blind. <laughs> Let's try that again. Um, David Jordao says, "I keep listening to you guys on during work because I have long hours. Just know, as one fellow mem- uh, movie lover to another, keep up the great work. You might not get a lot of viewers all the time, but as someone who always makes videos talking about movies, it's not views that count. It's the passions you guys have doing it. Okay, but more views are great too." Thanks, man. That's really that's really sweet. That's really nice. You yeah, know, man. We, these, we, this week inspired me. This comment section made me feel all good inside. Hey, man. These, hey, listen. We have our we have our supporters, and they definitely. And I love that we are able to engage in such you know thoughtful conversation. Is it really honestly? I feel like we have. I feel like out of all the fan bases on for the SK Plus network, you know, I'm not throwing any shade, but I feel like we have. The most elevated comment section when it comes to, yeah, it comes to. You and just throw shade to everyone, man. I'm not throwing shade to, <laughs> and no, but you read. I mean, I, I read this other dude's comment as you read. I don't, I don't read comments, but like normally, like when when you, I saw one dude was talking to have a whole like paragraph talking about like adaptations. I'm like, oh, what the fuck did we talk? And then we talked about that last yeah, week. Yeah, we and did. And just made that connection. So, yeah, yeah, thank you guys for, uh, thank you guys for for commenting. It's 
we, we appreciate it's it. It's really nice, guys. We appreciate yeah. it every week. You can do that. Leave us comment section. It's the best way to communicate with us. It's the best way to show us you care. Because sometimes we just don't know. Mm-hmm. We need that little boost. Um, and you provide that, guys. And, and you're also very gracious and kind. And we give appreciate us that it. little sh- stroke of ego. That's all we need. You know yeah. what I mean? We don't need no ego, man. <laughs> We don't need. <laughs> well, we're going. We don't need egos. Um, let's get into Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu, um, who is, as I said before, very famous Oscar-winning director. He is a master, and his first film is a film that RB three, yeah, actually saw. No, I'm kidding. Sp- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. It's it's actually the opposite this week. I think you've seen more Iñárritu films than I have. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think maybe. I mean, uh, let's start with Amores Peros. Amores Peros. I did watch this one, and this is his debut feature. Uh, it's about two hours, 34 minutes long, and it's basically the story of. <laughs> it's basically. These are not short movies, no, man. I, I gotta say, ignorant. I'm sorry, in Lalitu. I'm gonna. You can call him Alejandro. Alejandro. Yeah, Mr. G. Uh, <laughs> I gotta say, it man, just keeps getting less and less. I gotta say, man, your movies are really long, my brother. <laughs> <laughs> Each movie is like a good two two thirty, you know what I mean? So pocket change. Uh but uh, this, I mean they're all super engaging to watch and this one's super engaging. It's the story of uh three separate kind of tales, which is a theme that occurs a lot in his first three uh motion pictures, uh like the kind of interconnected stories. Um almost parallels does that, uh twenty one grams does that, and so does Babel. Um This one is is really uh but Almost Perils is about uh, Mexican lifestyle to 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 and the different facets of Mexican lifestyle. Uh, where we have one character who um, has his dog doing dog fights in order to like get by and um, marry his his. Uh, he wants to uh, help his uh, brother's wife escape from his brother because his brother is abusive to his wife and he wants to and he and he loves his brother's wife so he tries to start you know. You know, fighting dogs or have dogs fight each other to you know get get into that business to try and get some money for that. Meanwhile, it's also the story of a of a of uh, of a supermodel who uh, who is having this affair with like this magazine designer and publisher um, who is also married. But then she ends up like breaking her leg in a car accident. And it's all it all kind of revolves around like this car accident that happens in the middle of the film, and it's not in chronological order. So it's kind of like. Memento, in the sense that, like, you kind of or Babel or Babel, yeah, exactly, like Babel, yeah, 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 where you kind of have to piece together where in the time time line chronologically everything takes place. But you love that stuff, don't you? Yeah, don't yeah, you love yeah. when directors mess with timelines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the. I think that's an amazing. That's more of a newer technique that I feel like directors are starting to implement. I feel like this movie and Memento, they both came out in like two thousand one, and um, I was listening to a, a podcast earlier that was reflecting on how those films kind of married each other in, 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 in the sense of, like, you're discovering information along with the characters discovering things as well uh, about each other. So, um, and this movie's very deep, man. It deals a lot with, uh, when we talk about loyalty, our relationship, because every every storyline, there's also a third storyline in there, too, um, that's also focused on um, on loyalty and, and, and love. That's kind of the central theme throughout this entire movie is like loyalty, right? How, what are we loyal to and how we're loyal to it? And, you know, uh, uh, one of the bigger motifs is that each each character has like a dog in and of themselves and how the relationship between human and dog is supposed to be built on loyalty. But, you know, a lot of times these people 
aren't aren't being loyal to you know each other. You know what I mean? So sure. Um, so it's very it's very deep. It's very fast. This like it's really the story of. Um, I was listening to Ignorant to do an interview about this, and he kind of said it was the story of love, death, and um, remorse. You know what I mean? So that's how all three of those are kind of exuded. Those each individual, each individually, but also uh, encompasses all of that together. So sure, yeah. Um, I want to say something real quick to anyone who's watching. I, I want to always make this podcast available to you guys whether you've seen the film or not mm. so the purpose of the meaning of is essentially to to discuss the themes and discuss the purposes and discuss what reoccurring themes and views do the directors have in each one of their films so if you've seen one or two or none of of Iñárritu's films you can f- feel free to keep listening because we yeah. want to have a broader discussion of what the movie is trying to say and what kind of stuff that we see in his earlier films and maybe encourage you to watch these films and seek them out if you can. If you can't, right. it's totally fine. But uh, but yeah, I just wanted to say that real quick because it's kind of important to right, to right. let everyone know. Right. And it's it has Gael Garcia Bernal too. Yeah, it does. Yeah, same from uh, E2 Mama Tambien. So kind of has that crossover. And, and Babel. And Babel as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just, I mean, of course, it's... it's uh, almost like a recurring thing in in uh, his movies to kind of have a broad spectrum um, in terms of because I think what's really fascinating about this film in particular is that this where we talked about E2 Mama Tambien kind of exploring Mexico from like a higher class civilization this movie kind of explores like the three different facets of Mexico City right like the 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 dog fighting life the the middle suburban life you know trying to cope with like the relationship there and then also. Um, the upper class life with the with the model and, and the magazine designer and how those three, no matter what socioeconomic class you kind of land in, you each kind of f- face your own hardships, whether that is um, with real life violence and with, you know, like, you know, gangsters and thugs or whether that's with domestic violence at home and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's all very prominent and powerful, I feel like. Um, and it tells a very universal story in and of itself. So. Yeah, it's interesting because, like you said, it's a precursor to his later films, considering, I mean, especially Babel, which is a more international take on it. Right. But this is a very Mexican take on it, where it's like, yeah. it's it, you're, you're Mexican to the core, but at the same time, you're very different people. You have different lifestyles, and you have different points of views when it comes to life in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's relevant, especially now, with the World Cup. And I know a lot of people don't care about the World Cup, but I think it's fascinating um, especially scrolling through Instagram and social media to see the Mexican team and how someone in the Mexican team, like the passion and, and, and how much obsession that you are with the success of your team succeeding in the World Cup. I'm telling you guys, last week when we shot this, it was the night before the Colombia, uh, the Colombia-England mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm <laughs> telling you guys, I don't understand. Like I talk to my mom about it a lot because she's even more hardcore than I am. But I was disturbed. <laughs> like, I was hurt to the core. Like, I spent all day super depressed because we lost in the worst way possible in penalty kicks mm-hmm. when we should have won. And it's it's one of those things where I'm, I'm telling myself and I'm trying to dissect my own thought process and my own emotions by telling myself, why do I feel this way even though I'm not, I wasn't even as invested as other people who are even more invested than I am, or even the players. Like, how much worse must they feel? Mm-hmm. But it's it's this communal feeling, whether it's joy and and, and pure ecstasy, or failure and and pure depression. Mm-hmm. 
of seeing a soccer team lose in a match. Yeah. Like, it's so trivial if you really think about it. But at the same time, it's so important to so many countries, including Colombia, including Mexico, including mm-hmm. uh, European countries, too. I mean, it's one of those things that I, I find so fascinating that it's the most uniting front, the most uniting sport. I mean, it can tear people apart as well, but it's one of the most things that that unites us. Mm-hmm. And it's it's crazy to see that in Mexico because as someone who, who spent some time in Mexico, you know, quite a bit of time in Mexico... I, I saw that, and it's mm-hmm. one of those things that you can see that in, in Tu Mama Tambien as well, that the the class of different people, but at the same time, I, I'm going to get into weird territory, but the most, the biggest, in the United States, you face racism quite a bit. Like, that's the biggest thing that we face as societies, you know, seeing each other differently. Mm. In Mexico, it's class. Mm. Um I'm going to quote something that I don't even know why I'm saying this, but there was a video that someone made and said something negative towards like people who do a certain thing. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, if you do that, then you're just and it's like a derogatory word for poor people. Mm -hmm. And it's like the most offensive thing you can say in Mexico. (laughs) Really? Yeah, because it's one of those things that that's something that you don't do. And it's very interesting to see. um, But I don't feel like even people in Mexico it's a different kind of communal, you know, feeling. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff going on with the election, with the president, with uh, crimes that we've seen in Mexico. But it's it's very interesting. And I... Yeah. No, I'm well, going off your train of thought. No, so. no. Well, that's what I'm... You know, I was going to say, like, ignorant too, I was listening to uh, an interview that he did back in 2001 when this movie came out. Sure. It was talking about, you know, the interview kind of asked him, like, you know, you're, you're coming out and Alfonso Corona just came out with Y2 Mami Tambien as well. And... Um, Guillermo del Toro is busting on the scene. They kind of asked him, like, why do you think there's this new wave of Mexican directors coming in? And he kind of mentioned that the economy in Mexico is becoming more balanced than, like, the late 90s, early 2000s. So there was more revenue going into, like, theaters. People could go see more movies. And then that incited, that excited investors to allow more opportunities for uh, Mexican filmmakers, um, which I think is is fascinating because when you, when you look at... Um, when you look at all of these movies, they all are distinctly within their own culture, right? They all are distinctly within um, very, very Mexican, very, very of its own style, but also a lot of influence from like outside, you know, like where we talked about last week how Itumama uh, Tambien has a lot of like French New Wave influences, and this movie has a lot of American influences. Ville's very, very gritty, very, you know, neo realism in the, in the sense, you know, of like the, in the way that. Um, a lot of American movies have that, like, the sense of violence and gruesomeness, but in the, in, in, in this portrayal of supposedly real and trying to unveil that mask, and but still having some heightened, heightened elements to it as well. I feel like that's a lot of what this, you know, this movie kind of takes a lot from American cinema as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just overall. And then plus, you know, and with this movie in particular, when with his representation of Mexico City, um, you know, when, you know, because you have to get permits and talk to the council to film in, in the city and stuff like that. And they're worried initially that, you know, having um, images of thugs and, and violence is uh, was going to put a negative spin on the city. But um, ignorant to kind of mention that he feels like, uh, unveil, like not unveiling what was happening, but kind of sh- uh, demonstrating the reality there is for a lot of people within Mexico City, either on the top plateaus of 
society or on the bottom. So I think that's very important. Yeah, that's something that he's always talked about, being transparent and being real of what's actually going on in the mm-hmm. world. Um, let's move on to his next film, which I believe is 21 Grams. Now, 21 Grams is a film that you said you've seen a while ago. Yeah, this was a, a little bit uh, ago when I saw this. this sure. Was actually, probably my first Ignorantu film. Nice. Um, without realizing it. Um, but this is uh, this is kind of his first English-speaking, for the most part, um, movie that deals around, it's, it's again the same theme. And, you know, he calls, he's, he calls his first trilogy of films the trilogy of death. I think, if I'm not mistaken, you know, Babel, um, 21 Grams, and um, Amos uh, Pelos, um, because they all kind of focus on that central idea. Um, now, the title of this movie, 21 Grams, is not referring to any kind of like drugs or anything. What it's referring to is um, the amount that is supposedly lost when somebody dies, um, at, you know, after they die. Um, and what does that 21 Grams account for? Is that the soul? Is that the heart? Like, where is that? The person's being, you know, that's kind of the question. That's kind of the deeper question that's being asked throughout this entire story. Um, and it focuses on, th- again, three different stories. One of them being um, Benicio del Toro. He is a, uh, he is, he just got out of jail. He just become, he just became a redevout Christian. Um, and he's trying to pick his life back up, like, after, after prison. But he ends up uh, accidentally running over and killing somebody. Um, and it's the story of him dealing with that, but it's also the story of the family uh, of that person who got ran over. And it's also the story of, of, Sean, of Sean Penn, uh, who is, um, <clears throat> who, who, I, I can't remember exactly what kind of role he plays in this movie, but um, it's, 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 another, it's another fully circular kind of nonlinear, same, connected. Connected, connected story. And... Uh, they again. They, it all plays. They all play individual pieces into the larger theme of of death. Of death. Yeah, yeah. Because he's how, a critic. Uh, he's critically ill. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sean that's Penn what is. it is. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's ill, and he's trying to come to reason with like existing people in his life. Sure. About that. Sure. Um, and if he can rebuild himself, as, like a soul, almost. You know what I mean? Um, and leave people. Leave a reason leave a reason for people to remember him for, you know? So I think that's the big, that's the big, uh, that's kind of the, that's kind of the whole arc that all three of them kind of going on. Um, and it, it really is, the, it really does become the question, you know, for Benicio de Toro, it, it becomes like, oh, should he turn himself in for running this person over? Like, does that make him a heartless person for not, you know, for committing this crime and kind of trying to get away with, with it? And his wife is, not encouraging it, but like you know, he just you know he's an ex-convict. Like, and if he goes back, he's gonna be locked away for the rest of his life. You know, so it's like where where do where do we stand morally on that? Um, meanwhile, how does a family that's already broken and damaged deal with um, deal with the grief of like a, one of one of their one of their people? You know, one of their families, one of their relatives going. So it's 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 all around. You know what I mean? Like it, sure, it, it deals in the, in the bigger questions around death rather than just death itself. It's very interesting to see, you know, all these films and and see how uh, Inarito is obsessed with the deeper questions of life, life, death, existence, purpose. We mm-hmm. see those themes in in pretty much all his films, even even Revenant, even Bird, especially Birdman, because I just rewatched that one last night. That's essentially the whole purpose of the film is is finding relevance and finding purpose and finding 
your purpose of existence itself and what, what's life, what is life, what mm. is your mark on life, um, that scene where Emma Stone has all the, the, what, the toilet paper or whatever she's rolling off. And yeah. it's like each, this is how many humanity has and this is the rest of eternity. Mm. Like what is our impact on life itself and who do we impact when we live or exist? Mm -hmm. These are enormous questions, philosophical questions, theological questions that uh, Iñárritu is very much concerned with. It's, it's interesting because it's one of those things that uh, it's so deep. Um, so Sean Penn plays a, a mathematician too. So mm -hmm. it, it comes to the point of like, what is, he has his purpose here on earth, but when, when, when you're faced and when you're confronted with death itself, the, the questions that you always kind of shrugged under the rug, as in heaven, you know, death and Religion, life yeah, after yeah. after yeah. death mm -hmm. those kind of questions that scientists and you know logic based people completely ignore and completely throw away start to creep up a little bit more when you're facing against death and and you don't want to imagine nothingness because that's the worst thing that you can possibly imagine mm -hmm. um but at the same time most you know scientists and logic based people don't you know accept you know any kind of religious inclination, whether that be life or reincarnation, whatever that may be. So it's very interesting to put Sean Penn's character in that position and to put Benicio del Toro's character in a very much, you know, coming to God kind of thing, too. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's an interesting balance, but it's a difficult balance because I feel that's super relevant to today, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to faith intersecting with um, different types of people and mm -hmm. and politics too and i feel like in a sense of a little bit too much mm -hmm. um but at the same time it's it's very it's one of those things that people can throw away and kind of make laugh because i listen to a lot of political podcasts mm -hmm. and every time they bring up faith-based people mm -hmm. they kind of just laugh at them and it's right, like right, right. they kind of yeah. like oh these people are so dumb and it's like is that the best way to interact with someone who believes something that's not hurting you is that the same way you interact with someone who's who's muslim like you see what I'm saying? Like if if you don't if you don't, a religious persecution has been around for thousands of years, and I don't think it's necessarily religious persecution, but when it comes to logically and scientifically trying to comprehend someone else's belief in a bigger purpose or in a bigger God or in whatever it may be, even if it's something, you know, like reincarnation or something even more foreign that's not as American as God and Christianity. It's, it's, it's something that I think humanity has to come together on. Otherwise, it's gonna be the cause of even more wars. I mean, it's the cause of what's going on now in freaking the Middle East. I mean, that's, that's, that's what's causing it. Yeah, it was fun, you know, it's, it's, you know, and you know, I, I think to that point, um, I think to the point of like where, the, where a lot of the statuses of Middle Eastern countries are in, um, you know, that's an example of religious persecution in the sense that <clears throat> in the sense that religion is actually being used to harm people. Um, and I feel like what I feel like a lot of, you know, people on the on the left or the right, you know, we have this idea of religion as being this way that we can involve politics somehow and how we could, you know, how that intertwines with. It, how you use the Bible to justify, we talked about this before in the past, how you use it to justify things that are not 
intend, you know, are just not factually intent, you know, like like Jeff Sessions using quoting the Bible to lock up children in detention. I mean, centers. we we saw we did Twelve like, Years a Slave not too long ago. Right, right. That scene right. with Michael Fassbender is like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, Paul Dano too. I mean, he does the whole Paul Dano. Yeah, he sings that whole song in there, and and you know, and that's just what. And you know when people use their faith, their religion, and then it, you know you could be it could almost be said you know to some extent on the left too, where people use secularism as a as a mechanism of um, discrediting religion. Um, you know, I just I I I I I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding of the purpose of religion <laughs> just to begin with. You know what I mean? Like it's not supposed to. You're not supposed to use it to justify like not recycling, you know. <laughs> like that's like what? Like if you just think about that, it doesn't make any sense. Or it doesn't make justify, sense. you know, not, you know. I don't know. It's just I guess it's for people, it's the individual basis of belief. But I think there's just some things like you definitely can believe that climate change is real and that the environment is hurting, and also believe that. Um, I also believe, you know, in God and religion and all that stuff, it's, too. It's so. incredibly complex and interesting, to say the least. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of taking it back right now to a conversation that I had with Adi Shankar on the Schmoes show. Oh, right, Were you there right. for that? For the Casanova. For Castlevania. Castlevania. Because Castlevania. Castlevania is literally all about this. Mm. Like, literally all about it. Mm. And it's it's one of those things where it's... I talked to him about it, where it's it's it's... When there's actual physical demons, <laughs> like in the show, there's actual physical demons and shit, like attacking you. Mm-hmm. You quickly believe in the existence of like uh, Earth and, and hell. But at the same time, it's very interesting how in the show, um, the demons aren't necessarily the villains. It's, it's the extreme religious church people mm. who use the, the appearance and, and, and the confirmation of the existence of demons as a way to further persecute the ones that they've already persecuted before the demons showed up. And it's one of those things where Adi and I talked about how it's not how religious people are persecuting people. It's how a, 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 it's not how religious people are disturbed religious people. It's how a disturbed person Mm. uses religion to Mm. already confirm and his own hatred and his own ideas and his own ideologies mm-hmm. to to submit people or to throw people under the bus or to murder people whatever it may be it's not god it's you mm-hmm. you're using this and you're using god's name as a way to persecute other people mm-hmm. who you were already persecuted and that's what the whole series is about even though it's only six episodes but uh it's incredibly interesting too and i highly recommend you guys check it out but it's it's so important and it's so relevant because I feel like that is one of the most relevant things that we're seeing currently in the news today, in the world today, and, that, and all around the world too, that, mm. that let's not do this. But at the same time, that's not the same excuse. Uh, another movie I recommend that you guys check out is um, um, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Sorry, I almost lost the title of the movie. But Won't You Be My Neighbor? I checked out oh, two Mr. weeks Rogers, ago. Yeah. It's the Mr. Rogers documentary. And I saw it with two friends of mine. And afterwards, we went out to eat and we talked about it. And that's my biggest takeaway of the movie. And I know you haven't seen it. And I'm not really... I don't want to spoil anything. But at the same time, it's not really a spoiler. But the first thing you learn is how Mr. Rogers was a Christian and, 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 and was going to be a minister. He was going to be a pastor. He was mm-hmm. going to be... Uh, he wanted to use... Uh, he almost wanted to be a televangelist. 
because mm. he wanted to spread the good news of Christ. He wanted mm. to spread the good news of, of, of God and, and, and what it is. And he chose children instead. And he still spread his, his faith and he still spread the good news. That's what I wrote on Twitter is that he found his own church and his own pulpit and his own audience. And it was children. And he was spreading the messages of Christ through these episodes mm. and people and people you know so you know what i'm saying like mm. people don't want to acknowledge that but at the same time that's what it is that's you you can't you can't accept half of mr rogers if you're going to fully embrace him you have to accept that faith and how he used this faith to influence children and and, and messages and, and and certain themes that he did throughout the episode and it's themes of tearing down walls and themes of of standing against racism and themes of togetherness and themes of love and themes of acceptance and themes of all these these are christian themes <laughs> and other people would you see what i'm saying like mm -hmm. it's one of those things that i feel like it's so important to show what people of faith can be because a lot of times it may be someone who's extreme and who wants to persecute but it may be someone like mr rogers who just wants to show love to people and who wants to share his message of love so I don't know. I just went on a rant again. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I totally agree. And also, I also think it's good that they portray um, Niso de Toro as an ex-convict too, as somebody who has to make that decision. That's a, that's a very yeah. That's incredibly deep. I mean, you imagine the fact that it's like it's a moral, it's a moral question, but to the point of it's a life question too, because it's yeah. literally throwing your life away by going to prison your whole life, and anyone you're connected to is affected by that. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, MN Wash just came out. I want to give a big salute to the filmmakers for that, for showing uh, ex-prisoners in a positive light, something that's important and that you know nobody's talking about, but that's, 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 that's a good thing. And they're my favorite characters in the movie. Yeah. Luis yeah. is my favorite character. I love the Russian guy. Yeah, T.I. is cool. Is funny. Yeah, yeah, Like, yeah. they're literally my favorite characters in the movie, and I'm surprised that that movie's getting so much hate. Because I, I, I tweeted something. I tweeted out that I liked it, and someone was like, how could you like this movie? And I'm like, Ugh. Yeah, Sorry. <laughs> you know, you know what it is. It really is like kind of the most kind of popcorn-ish movie Marvel's put out in a while. And I mean, I, I think it was fun. I mean, it was. I don't need like the fucking dark, heavy <laughs> Infinity War again. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why people do. People want to see the half of the universe snapped away. Like, Jesus, man. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things too that I don't. <sighs> I don't know what people expected, man. <laughs> like, it's called Ant Man and the Wasp. Oh, it was too many jokes. I'm like, what did you want, man? Ant Man and the Wasp. Yeah, man. like Chill this out. is a. It was supposed to be a comedy. Like I even turned to my friend right before the movie started, and I told him, "This is a comedy, and I'm gonna watch this movie as a comedy, mm -hmm. not a superhero movie." Mm -hmm. And he said, "Really?" And he's like, "Yeah, it's a comedy. For me, it's a comedy. I'm embracing it, feels, it, it as more a like a Paul Rudd thing than it does like an actual." Um, by the way, that scene where Paul Rudd like. And like impersonates like a certain character that comes out. Yeah, later in the that movie. was great. That was probably my favorite scene of the. <laughs> I still, I still like. It's not really a spoiler, guys, but Luis's story in the movie oh, was yeah, great yeah, to yeah, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, the, yeah. that when he did uh, Evangeline Lily. Yeah. From the first film, and he's like, "Look at his hair, dude. I mean business." Like, I was like. Man. And when he started describing Paul Rudd, scene, he's like, "Ooh, girl, you saying some really messed up stuff, stuff, but I really want to kiss you right now, girl." And I was like, "Dude, <laughs> yes." There's the only Latino character left in the MCU. That's oh, all man. we got. Oh, <laughs> That's literally all we got, man. Uh, let's move on to uh, beautiful. Bab what was Babel right? No, beautiful. Uh, oh my God, you're right, Babel. 
Jesus, man. <laughs> it's hot out here, people. It's hot out here, it's man. Out it's here. messing with our brains. Yeah. We're in 200 degree weather right now. <laughs> oh, straight up. Not, that's not a joke, y'all. That's not, not a joke. joke. <laughs> uh, Babel is... Uh, he de- he describes it as his most ambitious film, as his as his biggest film, yeah, widest scope. So definitely. so so far, as yeah. far as is what he directed up to this point, which came out in two thousand six. Um, the two big actors and the big names in this movie are Brad Pitt and Naomi Watts. No, it, uh, Kate Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett. Damn it! I'm thinking of Birdman. Sorry, guys. Naomi Watts is in Birdman. Mm-hmm. Um, it stars them two, and it's essentially about. I want to say five separate stories. How this many? one's a little more. I mean, I know for sure there's the the kids who shot the gun. It's the kids in Morocco. It's the family. Uh, it's Brad Pitt and, and Kate Blanchett. It's the Tokyo story as well. Uh, Tokyo with Rinko Kukuchi. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also the Mexican one with Gal Garcia Bernal. And I think that's it. So it's uh-huh. four. So those those stories are the ones that we're focusing on. I rewatched this I film, so, guys, yeah. so... Sorry, I, I don't have all the details, even though I rewatched it. Um, yeah. It's the first thing I want to talk about when it comes to this movie is the international scope. Mm-hmm. And 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 I saw the behind the scenes, which I highly, highly recommend. It's incredibly fascinating. The making of this movie, it's on YouTube, um, where Alejandro talks about how the idea essentially came from how we're all connected. Mm-hmm. in the world and we share the same air and we're all humans and we all have a connection to each other regardless of culture, religion, race, language is the biggest thing, right? Because the movie's called Babel. Mm-hmm. Now, RB3, as a theologian yourself, <laughs> <laughs> but you know the story of uh, the yeah. Tower of Babel, right? Yeah, yeah. So essentially, for those of you who don't know, which I think most of you do, it's, it's how humanity didn't have different languages beforehand and how they use that power because it's a power. If everyone could speak the same language, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, to build a tower that can reach heaven. And God saw that as them trying to be above him. So he immediately gave them all different languages and they all started speaking different languages to each other, which ruined their project. It ruined their tower because they couldn't communicate how to build this thing because it's such an ambitious project um and that's the title of the movie and that's this whole thing that's going on and alejandro explains it to uh the little kid actor brad pitt's kid actor mm-hmm. in the movie mm-hmm. and it's pretty funny when he explains it because it's just this little kid he's like why did you call it Babel?" and he just goes on this giant story of god and all this stuff um and the kid the little girl yeah. is el fanning too is it really? Yeah, oh, I didn't I know, know that until afterwards. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But uh, but it's it's one of those films that is about those international things. And every time I see one of these these international type films, because another one that does it is it's a TV show. I know, but it's recent in my head. Sense Eight. Have you seen mm, Sense Eight? I haven't. No. Um, I saw all of Sense Eight season one. Um, but it's one of those things that it has that same feel as. It's as, about eight different characters. Correct. Who are connected? Correct. Okay. All around the world. Um, and every time I see one of these movies, personally, I go to producer mode and I immediately think, oh my God, this is a nightmare. Shooting this thing would be a nightmare. Like that's where my head goes. Because mm-hmm. what people don't know is that doing an international type movie where you're shooting all different stories in different areas, like Sensei and like Babel, is 
so much money, yeah. so hard, so difficult. You need to hire yeah. crews Cruise there for different different locations. You need yeah. to find permits or or a, just be allowed to shoot there. Mm. And and the documentary talks about it quite a bit, especially with uh, Tokyo, which apparently was the hardest one to shoot. And Alejandro yeah. lost his shit in the really? doc. He was really pissed off because the Tokyo police was the most strict out of like the Mexicans, out of mm. the Moroccans who were super kind and super open. And he has translators in different areas, so he has a he speaks to a translator and this translator speaks to to the actors and he tries to get different things across. It's it's so fascinating to watch that that documentary. Um but it starts out in the Moroccan desert with these kids who are playing with this gun that was just bought from a fellow neighbor in that village. Um, and it shows how this movie has so many themes. Mm-hmm. So many themes. That let, let's tackle, let's start with children. Yeah. Because there's a theme of innocence and childlike wonder that is embedded in all children all over the world, regardless of what culture or what language they speak. All Every child has that same, you know, I don't know what to call it, but blessing from God to have this childlike innocence uh, and sense of wonder that you kind of lose, especially when you become a teenager. But it shows how from Brad Pitt's kids to the Moroccan kids to the child of the Tokyo businessman. Right. Who's, who's she's still a t- a, she's she's becoming, becoming a, a teenager, becoming and, an adult. Yeah, and I feel like that's, you know, with that story, that's kind of... I think that one represents the transition from innocence to becoming more of your own and, sure. and discovering yourself. So, um, yeah, no, but please continue. The the fact that how such a horrible, awful thing like shooting someone can be in the hands of someone who never had that intention, a child who doesn't want to cause harm and doesn't want to do that, but his adventurous spirit and his whatever attitude can mm-hmm. be a negative thing, and it turns into that... The fact that he's he shot Kate Blanchett's character, right, right, which is in the first ten minutes of the movie, guys. So don't worry if I'm not spoiling anything. Right. But but at the same time, it, it shows how it comes from that, and it ends with the shootout, where which ends the kid's life, the brother's life, mm-hmm. and everything can go head on. I think the most pertinent image in this movie, in my opinion, this is the biggest takeaway that I have from it, is when in Japan, Rinko's character. Mm-hmm sees the the little kid on screen and, and it says you know uh suspects caught for shooting of american tourist or something like that and it's a child mm-hmm. it's almost like really like you you frame him as if he's like osama bin laden even though he's like a child like it, it's very interesting the way it formats the media and it's just one shot of that Mm-hmm. But I don't know. What do you What do you feel like this movie was trying to say throughout the story, especially of the two brothers and then the siblings of Brad Pitt's kids? Yeah, I mean, I I think they're all they're all kind of individual coming to age stories, like in and of themselves, right? With uh, with the the kids who are Brad Pitt's children, and they go with um, the the maid uh, to Mexico. Um, that whole story, I feel like that 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 whole adventure, that whole story is growing up with independence, right? Because there's that whole thing of people, you know, who grew up with and families of nannies and maids, how they become overly dependent. And we kind of see those kids being super dependent on her throughout this entire story. But the at some point they had to uh at some point they they ended up growing in and of themselves, you know what I mean? And 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 
they they got exposed to a lot of culture that they weren't normally exposed to. I mean, I, I think back to that scene when they're like, spin the chicken around and, and the head comes off and the chicken's just running around. It's <laughs> definitely something that not a lot of kids <laughs> is going to see. But not a lot of kids growing up in the San Diego suburbs. Right, right, right. Exactly. So, <laughs> but... But then, um, but then is 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 uh, but then even she has her own story of like love and like trying to find love and all that kind of stuff too. So it's it's fascinating how it kind of balances those sides and sure. and how coming of age can be something different for um, some rich suburban white kids going to going to and trying to get back from the border from Mexico to the border, you know, across the border back to America, and also. Uh, the story also the thriving growing like sexual you know discovery that young women go through and how would that affect somebody who's deaf who can't who literally can't who only has one method of communication that most people can't communicate through anyway you yeah. know um it's kind of like the ultimate metaphor for being silenced like not having any anybody speak to anything sure. that, you know what i mean so and nobody hearing you either so and you're not hearing anybody else so and I love that scene too when they're when she's in the club and then like it would just go back to her. <laughs> Can I say something too? Yeah. <laughs> Watch rewatching that scene and you hear that and it starts playing Earth Wind and Fire September. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. And then she can't hear it and I'm like, no. <laughs> you can't hear one of the greatest songs of all time. I love that song. Yeah, like it's song. it's one of those things where it's like everyone's dancing. Did it's like a so uh, cool song and she can't hear it. That's awful. Did you like, see the Taylor Swift version of it? No. Oh man, it's awful. Yeah, I'm not gonna do that. Yeah, <laughs> don't do that. To not doing it, man. But but yeah, I just that club scene was funny because as soon as they started playing that, I was like, hell yeah! What kind of club is this? <laughs> playing Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah, in Japan, yeah. man, they playing better music than they playing out here. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's just so it just and 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 like like you said with with the boys and and Morocco and how they have to grow from that too. Um, and I also just love how Kate Blanchett's character kind of has a journey in and of herself trying to be more open to allowing people to help her. And um, she feels like she, you know, she hasn't been listened to throughout the entire, you know, in the beginning when they're having that conversation uh, out there at that restaurant. Um, she feels like she's not being heard. She feels like she's not being listened to. She's being seen through. But um, through that process, she realizes how much I feel like her husband cares about her. Yeah, True. but it's also her like learning who the people really are because she views them in the beginning of the film almost like dirty. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Four, and it's like, ugh, you're drinking their water. Like it's, yeah, it's exactly. like, what? What's your problem? Like yeah. it's, it's it, she views them as like a foreign, disgusting object because mm -hmm. it's so foreign to her. And then she, at the, by the end of the film, she learns that if it wasn't for these people, they're they're so loving and caring, like right. your your preconceived notions of who they are. Or so incorrect, and she quickly learns that when her life is on the line, mm -hmm. especially with the the clutch homie who was like helping them out. I forget the guy's name, mm -hmm. but the guy who was on the bus and, the and giving the tour. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Right, right, right. That guy was clutch, and at the end of the movie, when Brad ha Brad Pitt hands hands him money and says, mm -hmm. "Here, take it," like that's the most common thing you can do, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, as, as even someone who doesn't have a lot of money would do that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a rich guy to be like, "Dude, you help me out. Take the damn money." Right, right. <laughs> But he refuses to take the money and he and he leaves and he's probably never going to see that guy again. But the fact that he knows in his head, that man saved my wife's life. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for him and his culture and his people, that the culture takes people in mm -hmm. instead of shoving them out, even though they're foreign, mm -hmm. 
you know, what would be what would happen if the roles were reversed and mm -hmm. he was in America and, and his wife was shot? Would it be the same reaction kind of thing? It makes you think probably not because the Moroccan culture is much more, you know, wanting to help and wanting to bring people in and, 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 and when they were offering them food and water and stuff and then giving them to, to the tourists and the tourists were like, nah, get away, get away. It's like, yeah, because if you're going to stay here, we might as well embrace you and, and show you hospitality that you probably haven't been shown. So yeah, that, that's incredibly important as well. Yeah. 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 And, and for me, a last thing I want to say about the children is, is the fact too that um, I saw the behind the scenes and uh, Iñárritu said that he wanted the two American kids to come in into Mexico to, to see it like childlike wonder where they see different animals on the street, they see different people walking by, and they don't take it in as Kate Blanchett's character, as uh or uh. They take it in as like, ooh, this is different, this is new, this is an adventure, this is something I've never had before. And when they hang out with the little kids, they're still little kids. Like, mm -hmm. they're just, it doesn't matter what culture, what language they're from, they're still going to play. Um, and that's something that the translator in the, in the documentary, um, the Arab... Arabic translator was saying in the movie, she's like, anywhere around the world, you throw some kids together and they're going to find a way to play, <laughs> even mm -hmm. if they can't speak the same language. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. going to find a way to play with each other because they're kids. And and then she was hanging out with this little girl who uh, was Moroccan, and, and she she told the translator that she had a little crush on Alejandro's son. Um, <laughs> and it's one of those things where he's like a little kid too. He's like seven or eight throughout yeah. the shooting of the movie, but he had him while he was shooting the movie. He had his kids with him. Uh -huh. which I think is crazy. Um, but yeah, it's how a child doesn't see borders. Mm -hmm. A child doesn't see separation. They, they see children like them, mm -hmm. and they see someone that they want to play with because that's all children want to do and learn, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That's my last thing on them. Uh, the other theme I want to tackle, though, is, is how let's talk, about, let's talk about Rinko's character a little bit more because her journey through not only being a teenager but being a teenager who's deaf um and can't hear anything is so incredibly frustrating to her as she's maturing into her sexual desires and whatever it may be because she sees that as something how people view how society views her as different as not accepting and, and, and how she wants so desperately to break out of that, basically. And it's so frustrating, but at the same time, it comes and it pairs in with the death of her mother. What do you think of... I love Rinko. She's one of... I've talked to her about... I, I talked to her with uh, uh, Kumiko the Treasure Hunter that came out in 2014 or 2015. <laughs> it's a movie that just stars her, and it's just her oh, acting her, her face off. Um, I think she's incredible. I think she's super underrated. Um, so Pacific I love Rim. that she she was in the movie. Obviously, Pacific Rim is where most people know her from, where she plays Mako. But I've loved her for years, and it's one of those things that she kind of shows, without saying much, she shows you everything she's feeling on her face. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, that great performance by her. She got nominated for an Oscar for uh, this role in Babel. And, you know, you can see why. Like you said, she's deaf. She's using a lot of her face for the acting. Um yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, that's, you know, the the whole idea of being the outsider amongst your own people, amongst, you know, amongst 
people who, you know, is your, your same skin color, same race, same country, and all that, but you're still the outsider because of your disability, I think is something that's very prominent for a lot of people who are faced with disabilities, right, and have to feel kind of left out of society because, you know, the societal norms aren't necessarily aligned with your conditions, you know? So, uh, yeah, and then she struggles with that a lot in this movie, and she somewhat kind of overly expresses how much she desires her you know uh, sexuality because uh that is I, you know i i kind of think is her way of trying to fit trying to feel like you know trying to fit in you know what i mean trying to be accepted by people um you know that's not her her her, her family you know that's not her that's not herself and her her dad you know and she even starts hitting on the police officer when when uh when when uh, he starts when he when he's asking questions just because she wants to, and you know for a lot of maturing, you know, females, not for a lot, but some maturing females are interested in that kind, you know, are interested in at least sexual relationships, you know what I mean? So, not all, obviously, but, it, you know, but in, in general, people in general, like, guys are too, of course. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's just it's just interesting that he chose to explore that with someone who's deaf, and it's a little harder for them to communicate you know, and, and express how they feel um, about uh, a person or, or, or something like that. You know what I mean? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. And it's, it's funny because this movie came out in 2006 and it talks a lot about um, different cultures and different borders. Um, let's jump to Amelia's story, the, the maid in the movie or the caretaker of the children, um, which shows you how she's desperately trying to find a babysitter for these kids, but she can't for her son's wedding. It's her son's wedding. Like, she's not going to miss it no matter what, so she just takes him with him. Um, and then on their way back, they run into a lot of issues, especially with Gael's character, who's awful mm. for doing that shit. Um, but, it's, but it's essentially about border crossing, right? Mm -hmm. And how perception of, of people because if, if the guy didn't question it if the, the security guy mm -hmm. who was at the at the border if he didn't question it he mm -hmm. they would have gone easily right yeah but it's also how could you not i mean the guy was so drunk man <laughs> like even someone i was like really girl like you can't see that this guy is so drunk and i know he's your nephew or whatever but come on yeah. but uh but that scene in the desert is like mm -hmm. a horror movie and it's shot like a horror movie because it's it's endless nothingness and desperation of life and death and the fact that she's with two little kids too makes it 10 times worse mm -hmm. and it shows you how people people face that horror like mm -hmm. all the time and it, it's a different situation and a different horror but it's still a horror mm -hmm. it's still a horror movie to do that sort of thing because it's you know as we're experiencing now, he is no joke. Oh, it's definitely a it, joke, it's no joke, man. And and that's that those deserts are so hot. Like mm -hmm. they're 115, 118, the kind of weather that we were facing over the weekend is is what people face when they cross that that border. It's insane. So yeah. so I think that's an interesting point. But I want to finish the Babel conversation essentially on guns. Because mm -hmm. I feel like this movie had a little bit to say about guns without saying much. I don't know if you caught that, but that's what I caught. The fact that what connected a few of the stories were guns. Yeah, yeah. How the it was just how it connected all of them, I feel like. All of them, right. Yeah, yeah. and it's one of those things where we see guys shoot in the air. That was one scene, too. Uh -huh. um, and we see how 
the the gun that was used to do the murder by the children was mm-hmm. the gun of the Japanese business guy. Mm-hmm. It was and, given to the Moroccan. It was guy. given to the Moroccan guy, and that's what was used to to cause this ins- crazy, you know, storm that happened with Kate Blanchett's character and Brad Pitt. And at the same time, it's what was used in the suicide of Renko's mom too, mm-hmm. because she committed suicide with a gun. And it's mm-hmm. how funny she. she basically created a story of her committing suicide yeah, and then when the dad off, re- yeah. jumping off and, mm-hmm. and when the dad reveals he's like oh she shot herself with my gun like with one of my guns because he's a hunter so he probably has more guns mm-hmm. so it's essentially like the presence of guns invites chaos mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i don't know if you caught that but i i kind of feel like that's what he was saying with that too right 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 i mean i feel, I feel like that's what he says and a lot of his movies, I mean, I feel like that's what was a little bit what, what was said in um, um, Amor uh, Pelos as well. Uh, and I mean, that's, I mean, for, you know, for a lot a lot of times that, that is what invites chaos, right? <laughs> Guns are kind of, kind of put human, you know, especially humans, you know, who are flawed and, and damaged a little bit, you know, it could, or who just don't know any better, like the, the kids in this movie. Uh, it just puts everybody in a, in a dangerous situation. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to Beautiful, which is his next film, starring um, what's Javier Bardem. Javier Bardem. Um, and this one is about a guy who goes throughout life, um, who knows, who knows what he's he can experience. He can see when someone else is going to die. Is mm-hmm. essentially what it is, and the theme run throughout it is essentially the theme. That's run throughout 21 grams mm. where the guy is starting to realize if you can experience and if you can see the most terrifying thing for humans is death. What how does your perspective change and how do you view life differently? Right. Mm. Um, it's incredibly interesting and fascinating for that, too. And it's the fact, again, of life and death and existence in this world and dealing with those giant themes that. You know, no matter who you are, anywhere around the world, we're all going to live and we're all going to die eventually. Mm-hmm. And it's it's some more quickly than others and some more terribly than others. Um, but it's a fact of life mm-hmm. and how society and the world is so obsessed with separation, um, like we saw with Children of Men and with other you know, movies that talk about the separation between people, whether it be in the Middle East or whether it be on the border with the U.S. and Mexico or whether it be anywhere, anywhere around the world, you're going to experience people and trying to tear down other people. But at the same time, life and death is still a connection that we have and it's still something that was given to us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, again, it's Iñárritu doing huge, huge themes. Yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts. I haven't, um, I, unfortunately, I haven't seen this particular film. Uh, but I do know Javier Bardem was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Leading Actor in that film. By the way, we got be we got shout out Indurantu for his uh, performance direction because almost all of his movies have uh, have. I was going to do that with Birdman. Oh, okay. but, but okay. you beat me down. to the punch, man. All right, all right. Uh, let's let's just do it. Let's jump to Birdman. It's uh, Birdman or an unexpected virtue of ignorance. Yes, ignorance or yeah, ignorance. ignorance yeah. yeah. Um, which is the full title of the movie. It's Birdman. I want to hear your experience watching this movie for the first time. Did you see it in theaters? Yeah, I did see it in theaters. I saw it like at the tail end of his run. 
And I remember walking out of that theater almost kind of furious because, like, I was like, "Whoa, what the fuck is this?" Because <laughs> I was, I was, I was in for the ride for a lot of it. Then it just got really dark and really because I, I, like I said, I watched Twenty One Grams a long time ago, and that's I didn't know ignorant, you know, him as a director. It was my first time seeing his work. And I was like, damn, that got that was like a really fun movie till it got really, really, really depressing. And then, um, but for some reason, it just stuck with me. So like, as soon as and it won Best Picture and everything. So like, as soon as it came on Blu-ray, I had it, and then I just watched it and watched it and watched it and watched it and watched it over again. And um, I like I, in the end, I ultimately just fall on really enjoying it and really appreciating what it represents as this mixture of um, film and cinema and with theater and with the actual drama and, 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 and Broadway and all that stuff and how it merges those two worlds together and how the use of the full one take thing is kind of the bridge that, you know, that it kind of bridges that gap, right? The whole illusion of, the illusion of, you know, having one take is, resembles how plays are kind of have to be done just in one experience in one sitting. So I don't know. It was just it, it just it, uh, it's, it's a great film to me. But I want to tell you my experience watching the movie for the yeah, first time. Me, I saw experience. I saw it by myself. I saw it during the beginning of its run. I think mm. no, no, that's not true because it was getting it was getting attention already, mm-hmm. and I, I just had to go see the movie myself. It's so funny because it wasn't necessarily how I took the movie; it's how others took the movie. Mm. I had people walk out in my theater, bro. Wow. People walked out. I'm, I'm so convinced, and I know I might be wrong, but I'm convinced that this is not what people were expecting when they said Michael Keaton and Birdman. Like, yeah, right, right, Like, right. that's not what you expect. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Like, this is one of the most meta movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in, in full capacity. And I'm going to blow your mind with how meta this is, but it's so freaking meta. It's meta to the point that even the people walking out of the theater are a representation of his comments of people who are just interested in blockbuster movies and mm-hmm. expecting Birdman, mm-hmm. spectacle, dumb shit, mm-hmm. explosions, fast and crazy. And mm-hmm. if I'm a customer and I wanted that and I didn't get that, I'm walking out of the movie. Mm-hmm. That's It's just ironic how meta it can get even during my experience watching the movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, this is what people consider to be his greatest movie, his greatest film. Would you agree with that? Um, I don't know if this is greatest. I mean, I definitely think Babel had a scope. Okay. This is probably this is probably one of the most ambitious films. Sure, and, and he said that too. I mean, shooting this is a nightmare. It's right, got to be a nightmare, right? Right, because it's you know. I mean, of course, it's not all one take, but no. they probably shoot it in like ten to twelve minute chunks of piece, and then find ways to hide and, the cuss in it. And you got to give props too to Lubeski uh, again. Oh, yeah, of I course. mean the guy. Yeah. You, you, it's crazy. Yeah. Like doing that stuff is insane, and that's yeah. so difficult to do. Yeah, yeah. Very minimal lighting. They kind of use a lot of you know natural stuff. I always think back to that scene where he's walking through the liquor store and it's all the chilies hanging down. It's just one of the most beautiful images you know in recent memory. Um, but they 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 have. I mean, it's, it's it's a lot about the internal struggle of fame and how fame kind of rots at people to a certain extent. And you know, we talked about the supermodel and um, and uh, and Amor um, and and Amor Prelos and how you know in her story, she ends up uh, losing her leg as a result of the car accident that happens in that movie, and how her fame kind of ends up dwindling, and she watches her billboard being taken down, and as she's like in a wheelchair, um, and how this and this movie kind of 
kind of has that same kind of thing too. Like he's watching, you know, there's that whole scene where he's talking about, uh, you know, uh, Robert Downey Jr. gets to dress up in the, in the, in the CGI suit and make. They, a, they call a, out a lot of people. Yeah, man. they literally say like, names. <laughs> Michael Fassbender, yeah. Woody Harrelson. He's like, oh, he's doing the next Hunger Game movie. He's like, damn it. And it's like Jeremy Renner. Yeah, yeah. It's like Jeremy Renner's an Avenger. And he's like, damn it. <laughs> so it's just funny how he he's seeing how his how his how the superhero phase that he kind of started kind of ended up becoming a thing and and you know you talk about how meta is how it became a thing in the real world with the with the batman and and with the birdman relationship right (laughs) and it's just super meta in that sense um i don't know it just and overall i mean just overall what it has to say as a commentary of not just superhero movies but of film and of criticism too because you know it really is like how you have to smooch up to some critics and or to get them to, you know, have some favorable, you know what I mean? Like, Well, I talked about it last week, remember? Yeah. I, I, I don't know if you remember this, but I, I mentioned how, and it's crazy how relevant it is now, especially with Birdman. But I talked about how it's, it's crazy how a film critic can just say, oh, it sucked. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, it, it totally sucks, right, yeah. guys? And it's like you try to sound like the smart film critic from the New York Times said it sucked. So... I'm going to go into the movie expecting it to... And it's like, it can destroy a movie. It mm-hmm. can ruin a movie because a critic said their opinion. And people take that opinion as better than their opinion. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So so it's crazy how that scene, that scene with the critic, that he, it's mm-hmm. one of the best scenes in the movie. I think the best scene in the movie because it shows you how it's like, it's so true how even Edward Norton says it, the, the idea of risk... The idea of risk and reward, the idea of acting is that, is is your risk being so transparent to an audience, whether it's in a play or whether it's on screen, it's an enormous risk. And the reward is recognition, it's fame, it's money, whatever you want to say the reward is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's crazy how as a critic... It, this movie doesn't like critics. You can definitely say that. Oh, yeah, definitely not. Or press, because it has another scene in the movie where they talk about the press. Mm. Um, and the pre- I don't know. You remember that scene? Yeah, yeah, That yeah. scene's another <laughs> one, too. When are you going to do uh, Birdman 3? Yeah, when are you gonna, <laughs> And the fact... I almost feel like that scene with the press, too, is almost like they throw China under the bus because when the Chinese guys are like, oh, you Birdman! Yeah, I don't give a shit about anything else you're doing. Like, And it's almost like, oh, Chinese blockbuster movie. Yeah, 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 <laughs> That's the yeah, Chinese yeah. box office. That's what they care about because mm-hmm. it reaches a broader audience versus something much more mm-hmm. potent but personable. It doesn't reach a big audience and people don't really care. It's like, mm-hmm. how many people care about what you're doing mm-hmm. is the theme in the movie, too. But but the, the scene with the critic, I, I feel like that's huge mm-hmm. because it's so true, especially what I, what I, when, I, when I mentioned it last week, how a critic can just destroy a movie um, by saying negative things and, or can do the opposite, can just bring it up, mm-hmm. depending on how powerful that critic is. Um, it's, it's incredibly fascinating in that front, too. So, mm-hmm. But essentially, the movie is still about um, existence and, yeah. and how what's your place in the universe what is your place in yeah. the universe and how does your life does it have enough of an impact that's the Emma Stone scene mm-hmm. um, with Michael Keaton where mm-hmm. she's talking to him about like it doesn't matter what you do it doesn't matter what I do no one cares about you mm-hmm. you know you're just you know an aging actor who's trying to find relevancy mm-hmm. uh, versus Edward Norton's character right. who's an up and coming actor who's kicking ass and you know, yeah, but he's also a but he's also rapist, you know? a rapist <laughs> and a, a, a drunk, a problematic actor on set. 
Not problematic. Like, he raped somebody. No, no but, uh, but I mean, like, when it, the gin scene. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Is yeah, the yeah. sense that he's like, <laughs> what, is, what is the risk and what, what is the reward? What is the, what is the, the balance of, of a guy who's an incredible, amazing, best actor working in, in, in the world today <laughs> versus an insane, rapist, crazy person who mm-hmm. takes advantage of people and is insane? Mm-hmm. Like, he's mm-hmm. just crazy. Um, what is the do you see what I'm saying and it's a question that we're still fighting today in in Hollywood because Mm -hmm. how many great actors are also massive massive (laughs) assholes abusers Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. we're the the hashtag me too movement was all essentially about that too how many people in power positions who who you can be like wow how great they are they're in power positions are Mm -hmm. actually abusive assholes Mm -hmm. (laughs) a lot of them most of them if not all of them (laughs) is what we're quickly finding out because that's what happens is Mm -hmm. that they realize that they can do what they want Mm -hmm. because everyone kisses up to him like edward norton's character they all kiss up to him so he's like whatever i can do what i want right kind of thing even manipulate the the play that michael keaton is doing right because he he begins to manipulate it and make it about him and make it about what he wants to do right 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 right. no so it, it 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 just all i just think all 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 of it overall has a lot to say about celebrity, but also about reality too, and um, how how you can come how I guess they frame the whole question of existentialism through the lens of celebrityism, right? Like how uh, our perception, how you know, like there's the whole idea of like the postmodern, uh, the postmodern baby or the postmodernist is not is somebody who doesn't um, who doesn't have who doesn't believe in the actual truth, but just the perception of that truth, right? Like, the way you see the world is the truth, not the actual truth for the world. And I feel like that's what Birdman comes into question a lot. Like, what, like, it, like what is, is, is what, is the Birdman character the truth of, of, my, of Michael Keaton, or is that the way that people perceive his truth, you know? Is that the way that people, you know, people who have consumed his movies, people take pictures with him as Birdman, you know? And like referring to him as Birdman, you know what I mean? So like, that's how most people see him. But uh, is that the actual reality of his situation? You know, no. But then also yes, because he, I literally, you know, he he sees himself as Birdman to a certain extent. He literally he starts flying and everything. So I don't know. You know, it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's a tough question. It's it is. Question. It's incredibly it's philosophical. This movie is, and it's also I feel like that relevancy and that truth that you're talking about also plays into love quite mm-hmm. a bit because the play is called. It's it's the play. It's it's what we say we know about love. I think it's what it's called. I think something like that. And the whole movie. I mean, obviously, I don't know if you rewatched it, but it's every time they're rehearsing, they're talking about like, what does love mean? What is actually Mm -hmm. love? Love Mm -hmm. is not doing that. Love is not doing anything crazy because that's too much, Mm -hmm. is what Edward Norton's character says. And then at the end of the movie, the the scene that keeps happening over and over again is when he finds his his wife with another guy. Mm and he's, you know, he starts to say like, "Oh, you're never gonna love me." And she's like, "No, sorry," and he turns the gun on himself. Mm-hmm. And he starts to say, "No one loves me. No one cares about me." And then pulls the trigger, right? Mm-hmm. But that's part of it too. Is like if someone doesn't find you, if someone doesn't love you, full hearted, uh, full heartedly, <laughs> uh, with with no stipulations, just full love. Um, what does that really mean? And is that the true relevancy? Is that the true, you know, existence and your purpose in this world? Is mm-hmm. to find that, to mm-hmm. find that love, whoever or whomever it may be. Um, that's a huge thing in the movie, and it's 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 crazy because that's 
what he's trying to do is he's trying to have more people love him mm-hmm. throughout the whole film to the point where he literally you know shoots himself on stage to the point where he literally shoots himself on stage and that makes him uh, even more famous and, yeah. it, and it, it gives him the relevancy and it gives him what he wanted mm-hmm. was to have that mm-hmm. and it's one of those things too where um i was going to talk about this later but i gotta say it now the fact that him shooting himself and him shooting his nose off and when Zach Galifianakis' character, um, who's great in this movie too, mm-hmm. um, tells him that he reads the, the headline and he reads it and he starts to say, you know, actor creates a new brand of acting called hyper-realistic acting. <laughs> this movie is so meta to the point that it predicts the damn future. Mm-hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant. <laughs> that's literally how he got it. I was just like think because I rewatched this movie and I was like oh my god this movie is literally talking about hyper realist acting where you're actually doing this stuff and where you're actually bleeding and where you're actually eating shit and doing stuff and freezing cold instead of pretending to be freezing cold that's the revenant mm-hmm. that's literally Leonardo DiCaprio in mm-hmm. the revenant mm-hmm. and I just think it's so funny how meta this movie is to the point that it predicts the next Oscar and the next awards and the next all this stuff that mm-hmm. that happened with the Revenant and with Iñat, and um, Alejandro Iñárritu's movie, and it's 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 so fascinating to me personally, right? To the right. point that think about it, this movie gave Michael Keaton an Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. This movie is about Reagan Thompson, his character. I think trying, it's yeah, yeah, trying, trying to, get to get that kind of relevancy yeah, from critics. This movie was beloved by critics. Like it's just yeah. so meta to the point that, like, at the awards, the person who won the best actor was not Michael Keaton. Was a person who actually used that hyper realistic acting, Eddie Redmayne. I was like, oh my God, like I'm blowing my own mind. I'm like, wait a minute. The acting, the crazy, like, it's like, well, Michael Keaton was really good in Birdman. Yeah, but Eddie Redmayne played Stephen, uh, what's the guy's name? Stephen Stephen, Stephen Hawking. And he actually, you know, got that disease. What was it? What's it called? The. But what he actually <laughs> yeah. physically transformed, mm-hmm. and that's why they gave him the award. It's it's all like mm-hmm. the hyper realistic acting that he was doing in the show where he shot his nose off. That's the kind of acting that Eddie Redmayne yeah, was get, doing, get and that's why he beat Michael Keaton. I was just like, wow, dude, this mm-hmm. is crazy. Mm-hmm. But do you think Michael Keaton deserved it over Eddie Redmayne that year? Um, I think so. Yeah. I mean, well, honestly, I feel like a lot of the performances in this movie did really well. Um, Emma Stone. Put up a really good. She a was really good she was Oscar nominated too. too. Yeah, 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 and uh, so uh, at Norton, but yeah, Michael Keaton. I mean, he was doing something. I mean, it depends on you know the way you look at it too. Is he playing himself? <laughs> Is that the way? I think the one scene uh, that did it for me was the scene where he starts to pretend that his fa- he had an abusive father. Oh yeah. I was like, <laughs> like watching that in theater. I was like. Gosh, man, he really is going for the Oscar. And then he was like, I'm kidding. And I was like, oh my God, that's even better. Yeah, 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 <laughs> As I'm like good. writing a review, I'm the critic. Yeah. Like, As Michael Keaton described his story, and then he turns it around, give him the Oscar. Like, I'm the critic right, right, watching right. this. But it, I, I just think it's so crazy how meta this movie got to the point that the perception of this movie itself was how he was talking about critics beforehand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just crazy. And the fact that Edward Norton's playing himself too. Right, right. I mean, they say he's playing himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. Obviously, he's not playing himself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if he is, I mean, 
I mean, if he is, I mean, I hope he's not a rapist. You know? Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> but he's supposedly like an asshole. Yeah, say, yeah. Stuff, which I mean, like, a lot of people are. A lot of people are. And I think that's where I think that's why I connected with a lot of Hollywood people because sure. they just know a lot of. I feel like a lot of people in Hollywood do kind of feel the way that you know uh, Michael Keaton does, <laughs> which is also another meta commentary on you know. But hey, but you know that I guess I don't know. To me, to me, I just always found it fascinating that. Um, this that 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 this movie um, celebrates so much like the 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 dependency on the true art of a film and like how blockbusters are just kind of washed or whatever. Um, but meanwhile, like it it it, 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 it exudes its own like it, it kind of flexes its own muscle by having like the whole flying scenes and making you feel like those well, are what Birdman be- is saying throughout that too. Yeah. Like, I, do you remember yeah. his speech? Yeah, that, yeah. Where how talk, he feels good. Um, how it's, it's, he says it's, it's better to feel this way because you're yeah. over, you're, you're towering over so many people mm. because so many people want to feel, you know, like you scare the shit out of them. He starts to say, mm. like, you, mm. you make them feel scared and disturbed mm. and you want fast and action and explosions. And then that crazy action scene happens. Right, right. But right. he starts to say, like, that gives you dominance over people and that gives you more power and more relevancy because more people see that and consume that mm-hmm. not this boring slow words and talking stuff is what he says in the movie yeah so it's it's kind of fascinating because it's another commentary on the the difference between the blockbuster and the the actor who's who's going different paths and trying to find what is the true relevancy a mm-hmm. number one top movie at the box office or an oscar mm-hmm. you see what i'm saying mm-hmm. like it's so so many layers to this movie that i think it's amazing to that point because um, it, it really is kind of throwing a lot of people under the bus. <laughs> right, 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 right. Like it throws a lot of people under the bus, and I think that's sort of unfair, but at the same time, it's funny how people perceive this movie itself. Um, any last thing for you on Birdman? Nah, I mean, it's just a great film. Yeah, no, for, for me, I, I think the biggest thing I took away from this movie was the fact that it led into the revenant and how people yeah. perceived the revenant mm-hmm. and how people perceived acting to that point because think about who who i personally feel deserved the oscar that year because it's a different form of acting michael fassbender and and jobs and steve jobs mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the fact that the reason why he didn't win was because he didn't do the crazy shit that leo did right and he you know, did the talky shit that Birdman himself talks about <laughs> Birdman. Mm-hmm. Like, I just think that's so crazy how literally Birdman says, oh, not that talking shit. Like, give, give me something more. Give me something real. Give me something crazy. That's what Leo did, and that's what Michael Fassbender lost in a way. Um, if you ask me, Leo should have won for Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. Hands down. But do you should think he should have won for The Revenant? No. Okay. Okay. But I don't like The Revenant all that much. So Ooh, I'm just going to Tell time. me. Tell me your feelings right now, man, because those, we're going into The Revenant. So yeah, tell me. I mean, it's just, to me, to me, this is the one ignorant to film that I can't really revisit because it's just so long and so like, oh, God, what are we doing? And um, it just it, it's, it's drenched in so much like, oh, here's a beautiful shot after beautiful shot. I don't know. I think those beautiful shots are pretty beautiful. They are beautiful, man. They're beautiful. But you know, I could watch a nature documentary as well. That's three hours. But nah, I'm not. I'm not gonna disrespect the movie like that. It is a very well executed. I think the whole opening thing with like the whole battle that happens is dope. It's Uh, incredible. Like that. That to me, like I was gonna say, but you beat me to the punch. The battle stuff that's going on in this movie. The way this. The way he shoots the battle stuff. Emmanuel Lubetsky again doing doing another movie with uh, Inarito. 
the way he shoots the battle stuff is it's the best parts in the movie in my opinion yeah because it's just so cool because all of a sudden the camera turns and he's right there and Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden he's far away and a guy falls out of the tree and then Mm -hmm. it's just crazy it's crazy it's so good no, I mean that's really that's I mean that's probably the one of the most impressive. They use mostly natural light to shoot it, so the, obviously the cinematography is gorgeous. Um, and they use the new Lexi Lexa forty uh, Ari Lexa forty uh, sixty five. Um, so obviously beautiful cinematography. Um, I just thought that the story, like, the story, yeah, it just didn't it didn't grab. I don't know. I just I guess I'm not interested in seeing a dude like open up a horse and like eat his stomach or whatever, but. Uh, which he was, actually did, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, which give did. him the Oscar now. Yeah, like I was talking to my mom about how Leo's performance in The Revenant really did change acting in a way because it, it it's not it's not pretending anymore. You're just actually eating raw fish and you're actually freezing cold and you're actually starving yourself and you're yeah. actually, you know, you know, feeling pain and you're actually bleeding and you're actually like that's. That's how this movie is, basically. Right. I mean, there's a lot of like method actors out there, you know, and of course, like Daniel Day Lewis kind of sure. was the guy who put that, I think, more towards it. Well, get Marlon Brando than uh, Daniel Day Lewis, but then Leonardo DiCaprio took it to a whole other extreme where you're eating like raw animal <laughs> and. And all this kind of stuff. Um, I I don't know. I don't know because I, I feel like that to, personally is the biggest takeaway from the movie is the acting. It, it comes to the point where it's like defining and rewarding acting, right? Because you have the on one hand you have the Michael Fassbender who's learning lines and talking and embodying this certain character, and the way Leo embodied the character was experiencing pain and experiencing like people joke a lot because it's a it's fair point that you know how many lines does Leo have in this movie? Mm-hmm. Not a lot. He, he's mainly grunting and going Ugh, like I think there's an honest trailer about it, um, yeah. but it's so true. It's the fact that it's like he's grunting, but that's a real grunt. He's actually in lots of pain, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you just put a camera on him, and you're just like eat shit, bro, and he actually eats shit <laughs> instead of pretending it's shit. Mm-hmm kind of thing and it's like is that a more award-worthy performance versus someone like a michael fassbender who learns all the crazy a billion lines of dialogue that he learned in steve jobs well you know personally i i would take the michael fassbender one over you know kicking someone in the stomach and then being like oh it's like bro you're just kicking him in the stomach (laughs) like you're just giving him the he doesn't really have to act he just feels the pain Right, I mean that could be a form of act. You know, I mean it is. It's that, a different form of acting. Right. I, I want to make it very clear. I'm not criticizing that. I'm simply saying that it's two different styles of acting. It's the physical acting versus the verbal acting versus the the. They're both characters. They're both playing different characters. They're both playing real characters, but one of them is a physical form of acting, which is acting, and another one is a, a much more verbal lines dialogue form of acting. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think also, too, uh, um, um, Alejandro G. Ignoritu is very influenced by theater. And in theater, a lot of times, it requires more physicality because when you're in a theater, you have to act bigger so the people in the back can see you, too. Um, so I feel like that's a lot of what is kind of incorporated into his movies is kind of the, not the act bigger, but the more emphasis on the on the physicality to a certain extent, right? Like, having uh, a much more, you know, giving the actor as many tools as possible in order to uh, 
in order giving the actors so many tools and as many tools as possible to to to, to get those the kind of rawness the 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 uncut filter unfiltered like rawness of their performance and i think he does that in this movie and he that he does that on all of his movies. I mean, I, again, like I talked, I talked about this to an interview of him with a more uh, when he talks about a more parallels and he talks about how he he asked one of the actresses like, "What kind of cologne does your boyfriend wear?" Uh, and then she told him. And then the next day, he had uh, uh, he had the character who was playing in the relationship wear that cologne. Right, just a little touch, but it adds that little tool. For the actor to get more connected on a personal level, so. And you mentioned it beforehand, and I, you have to give him credit for doing the kind of crazy shit to get the performance that he gets out of these actors, because at the end of the day, you just mentioned it: beautiful, Babel, mm. Birdman, The Revenant. Yeah. All Oscar nominations. Right, right. Every and, single one of them. Acting he, nominations. Yeah, even Amor Pelos was nominated for Best Foreign Film. So all of his movies have garnered a lot of respect. No, but it's, especially with acting is yeah. what I'm saying. Like yeah, the yeah. fact that he can get... He, he talked about it a bit in the babble behind the scenes too is the fact that he's obsessed with getting emotions and raw crazy emotions from his actors because that's what he wants from them. Mm-hmm. And every single one of them... you. There's no there's no discredit when it comes to performances that he gets from these actors for mm-hmm. sure. I mean you can't you you can't say that's a bad part of the Inarito films is the fact that he gets bad performances because every single one has a great performance or several great performances. Right. And um, now I do want to ask you though about for the Revenant in the case that you know I know a couple of Native American people don't take too kindly to this movie because of its portrayal of the natives, right? And how it portrays this kind of like white man fantasization of the native people, um, and in some cases, almost acting as like the white savior in, in the in the scene where he kind of, I guess, tries to, helps the girl, you know, uh, you know, with you know, helps the, the 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 native girl, like when I guess like the rest of her people are trying to you know do whatever to her. Um, so it's just and and how it's like that romanticization of how it's always being framed of like as. Natives are being framed as like these mystical beings who, you know, all that kind of stuff. I, I know some people didn't didn't take too kindly to that. It's crazy because I don't. I feel like that's the opposite of what Leo wanted hmm. for them to feel that way. Personally, I feel like that's not what he was catering towards. But yeah, that's a very good point. I feel like yeah, that it is a white savior movie. It absolutely, one hundred percent is a white savior. Movie. And you know, I mean, we I mean we didn't mention it last week, but you know, a lot of people thought you know a lot of people. One of the criticisms of Children of Men is that. The, you know a lot of people perceive it as a white saver movie because it's this it's about this white dude who comes into this organization run by Luke who's played by Chuita Edger for a black dude and Julianne Moore a woman but it takes this white guy to kind of end up saving the day um, but you know I mean it's just a fascinating question because when you're talking about people of color who are behind the camera who are making these movies is that really the same kind of narrative or you think there's a different approach? I mean, especially for Ignorantu being Mexican and having, and where, whereas natives and, and, you know, kind of the foundation of, 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 of the Mexican bloodline is from the mixture of natives and Spaniards, how that kind of reflects a little bit on his ancestry as well. Not directly because it's in America, but uh, you know what I mean? Like There of, is, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, obviously yeah. as someone who's been in Mexico, there's a native there's a shit ton of native people. Like mm-hmm. the, the 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 entire entity of the of, of southern Mexico is native culture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. I guess I'm stumbled, I'm stumped for this <laughs> one. I don't know. I really don't because I feel like it's it's so difficult to find 
it's hard to find portrayals, but at the same time, that's kind of an excuse to, to say that because it's like, it's not hard. You can find Native American people. You can find these people. And at the end of the day, I can counter that by saying the story was essentially about Hugh Glass, a real life story. Mm-hmm. And that was the main focus of the story. Right. But how much of that story is real? Because you know, that's a lot of... A Probably lot of, not a lot. <laughs> a lot of people you know, have come to the point of like a lot of this movie is kind of fictionalized, right? Like... I don't know if the I don't think the Hugh Glass really had a Native American half son, and, no. and you know it wasn't like this revenge tale. Well, it wasn't. Well, I think it was. It was a revenge, revenge tale. tale, but it wasn't. It wasn't because like they killed his son. I think they just kind of left him all there. Got it for dead, or you know what I mean. Like so, yeah. I think there's there's parts of the story that are fictionalized for sure, but uh, it seems like the parts of the natives are a little more amplified in in this story, and they kind of end up you know, and, and a lot of times they end up betraying. The natives and the and the the white the, you know the white people in this movie um, antagonistically, which is which was the circumstance back then. But is that also like uh, is it does it feed into the old American westerns like cowboys versus Indians kind of thing too? You know, I mean it's, these are all questions that are left to be answered. They are left to be answered. Yeah, yeah because I feel like yeah, it probably does cater towards the cowboys and Indians of old times I, I think it absolutely does for sure i mean obviously he tries to balance it out with the one native american character that he runs into and helps him out yeah right, 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 um right. but at the same time i mean even donald gleason who's the probably the second good guy in the movie right yeah he's another super white dude <laughs> yeah 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 uh, but I tom, don't, tom hardy though tom hardy to see him in he this. acts his ass off in this movie yeah yeah i mean he, he's another guy who got an oscar nomination for this yeah and he did so well in this he didn't like he didn't show up to set for suicide squad that's how we <laughs> ended up with uh with the other homeboy that's was right. cast in there yeah that's right yeah yeah, yeah. who i like joel kinnaman um, I like that guy. I think he's great. Um, but yeah, I mean that that pretty much concludes the Revenant, in my opinion. Unless you have something else to say, I mean, no, obviously I mean, it deals with with other things such as you know religion. religion yeah, religion, spiritualism. I was going to talk about too. you know faith and how and how it balances that because uh-huh. I feel like that's another running theme. I mean, we talked about it beforehand and how faith can have a huge hand in uh, Inarritu's films. And it absolutely does in this movie too. That's a right. huge part of the movie is is faith in God and mm-hmm. and you know. And again, I'm not saying I hate the Revenant. Like I don't. Like it I sounds think like you do, Robert. No, no, no. I do. I don't. I, 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 I just. I. It's not a watching experience that I can experience again. Sure. But it does have a lot to say in a lot of fronts, and I'm not just calling it a white savior movie. I think it does have a lot of nuanced, interesting things to say about the relationship between natives and. Europeans and what you know, white people, and how that interaction, and how you could kind of cross barriers from both. You know, what I mean, sure. like, like you said, there's the example of the native people, the native people who are helping. Leo's character is also the fact that Leo had a have a native son in this movie, and it's also the fact that you know, it's, it's different relationships that that occurred throughout this. Yeah, I don't feel like intention. Yeah, was ever directed towards what you were saying. Yeah, yeah I right. think that's the intention. No, but what ended up happening, possibly, but I feel like the intention was much more supposed to be about connection and how right. Leo's character can be connected to another culture because of the relationship he has with his wife and how it's totally fine and okay to have a native wife and mm-hmm. to have relationship with them and instead of trying to you know fight them and shoot them because they're foreign and because they speak a different language you can you can join them and learn about them and join their culture and i think that's what was what Inarito was trying to do right 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 no, absolutely so so and and obviously 
there's a 45 minute documentary about making this movie mm. because it's one of the most difficult movies ever to shoot mm. especially the way it was shot because there's a shit ton of wonders in this movie mm. um and they and only I, shot for like three hours a day right yeah just for the peak because lighting. of the lighting man yeah. i'm telling you guys like the making of this movie is equally as fascinating as the movie itself mm. so i recommend you guys check that out because you have to give credit no matter what for the ambitiousness of this movie because it's incredibly ambitious and the fact that he can almost kind of top himself from Birdman, one of the most ambitious movies ever, to The Revenant, another one of the most ambitious movies right, ever. Right, right. And the, you know, it's funny too, these movies have a lot of wonders, but when you look at something like Babel, that movie is cut, like it has so many cuts. A lot of his earlier movies are very heavily edited to the point of like, like I remember particularly watching Babel and like, because I, I wa- we watched it in, in film school, and like literally, like there are moments that are like a helicopter's landing. And it takes like seven to eight cuts to like, get the helicopter land, you know. And I, I mean, I think, I mean, that's a stylistic choice. It's very it purposeful, is. Yeah. and it's very much to give you that disarrangement that like these characters are feeling. Uh, and I think that's also a, 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 a key part of his filmmaking as well. He uses the techniques of filmmaking, the editing, the cinematography, all of that to enhance the viewer's perspective of getting behind the will of, of each individual character and how they're feeling in those moments too. So Yeah, I mean, I, I'll finish up by saying, to be honest, man, like just watching interviews, and I'm sure you watched a ton too, mm. I, I just really feel like he's a poet. Like, mm. like Iñárritu's a poet. He, he's, a, he's an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's a genius too, to be honest. Mm. Um, and it's really is fascinating to hear him describe what his thought process is because it's incredible. Like the way, mm. like little moments and little details, an audience member might take that and say, whatever. But he says five paragraphs of poetry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think he is a genius and he's one of the greatest working directors today in Hollywood. So Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And with that, guys, we finish up our episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. If you did, leave us a comment. Let us know what your favorite Iñárritu film is. Um, Let us know if you can correctly pronunciate his name because I think I mispronounced it quite a few times throughout this episode. So apologies for that. Um, We're probably going to find another director. We don't know who it's going to be. But you guys will find out soon, hopefully, maybe, for next week. Join us next week. For the Meaning of Podcast, I am Ace. This is RB3. And we are peacing out. Peace out, guys.